Hey everyone and welcome to the podcast. This episode is proudly brought to you by, well, anybody. We are currently looking for a sponsor for the Road to Success podcast. So if you, an organization or business you know or are involved with might be interested in finding out some more information about sponsoring the Road to Success podcast, then please contact me online either via mattylovell.com or you can find me on Facebook or Instagram too. We can start to go over how things might work and have you or your business sponsoring the Road to Success podcast. Until then, enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Road to Success podcast. My name is Matty Lovell. Thank you so much for joining me today as I chat to my good friend and all-round legend, Andy Beal. Alrighty, Andy Beal, thanks so much for doing this. Hi, Matt. How are you? Good, thanks. Yeah. Thanks for uh, biking over. Do you own a car? I do. You do? Yeah. yeah. What percentage of time do you spend on your bike versus your car, do you reckon? I try to bike as much as possible. I enjoy biking. It's it's win-win. Don't have to park. Bit of exercise. If I've got to take the kids somewhere, I'll drive. But generally, if I can take the bike, I will. Yeah. So what, 80% of the time on the bike? Usually only using the car at the weekends at oh, the really? moment. Wow. Good on you. Hey, well, um, I, thanks again. You know, I, I guess I, I'm sorry it's taken me so long to get you on. I was I was thinking about um, sort of I like to have interesting and inspirational people on here and you tick both those boxes. So I, I appreciate you taking the time to come and do this. I guess I wanted to, I know a little bit about your past. You tend to like to fly under the radar slightly, but I think you actually mentioned it once that you're a doctor in jet propulsion. <laughs> Have I got that right? <laughs> we must have been talking it up that day. <laughs> um, I do have a PhD. Yeah. So I studied mechanical engineering at university. Mm-hmm. My PhD is thermodynamics, thermofluids, combustion. But the unsteady combustion and the type of device I studied is called a pulse jet. So I wasn't looking at it from a propulsion point of view, more uh, as a heating device, trying to understand how it works. But if you've heard of the buzz bomb, the doodle bug from World War II, that's probably the most famous pulse jet. What got you into that? Was that just like a, you had a natural inkling for chemistry or fire or heat or what was it? When I studied, I definitely enjoyed the fluids and thermodynamics more than traditional steel bending solid mechanic structures just i think it was because fluids and thermo was less of a nailed down science there was a bit more of an art to it and i had good lecturers as well at university my university was in england cardiff Cardiff, yeah yeah. Yeah, i love cardiff that's probably why i stayed on to do a phd to be honest i just didn't (laughs) like the city I'd, i'd worked before i went to study i worked i was a basically a a mechanic with the military for five years, although I was civilian. Uh, And then I went to university when I was 21, three years for a degree. I didn't want to leave. I was having such a great time and the PhD was offered to me and I took it. And it came funded as well. So I managed to leave university without any debt, which was pretty cool. And I just had really, so my thermodynamics and fluids lectures were just really cool people. And I think that drew me to those subjects. Yeah. The PhD itself was very hands-on. I was given some devices and at the start I had to cut and weld them and, and make them work and and it was probably more hands-on to begin with than it was theory. And I got to set things on fire 
make lots of noise. It was pretty exciting. Yeah. And so yeah. when you, you finished that, and then did you work in that field? So I stayed on at Cardiff University for a wee while doing research. Uh, I was a research assistant, did a little bit of lecturing, you know, by the time I got to 30, I had life pretty sewn up. I had an office, a good salary. I was Dr. Beale and life was looking rosy. And I don't know, I often question if I did the right thing. I could have easily stayed in academia, stitched some elbow patches on, on my jersey or on my tweed jacket and, and stayed there forever. But it just kind of seemed too easy. So, yeah, that's when I kind of packed up and came to New Zealand, really. Why'd you pick New Zealand? My partner at the time, she'd lived in Australia for five years. She really wanted to go back to Australia. I had a Kiwi mate, and he was like, you've got to go to New Zealand. So he was an outdoor guide. I ran a couple of mountain marathons with him Mm -hmm. and raced, did some adventure races with him. And uh, he said, you've got to go to New Zealand. So So he came over here and started working as an engineer here? A mechanical engineer, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. but you obviously had this sort of, you know, you've done some adventure races already. You're sort of, you're interested in that area when you were back overseas? Yeah, well, just one year, really. I mean, what was that, 2000? We did an adventure race series in the UK. We did well. We thought we were great. And some friends of ours were in the adventure race in World Champs. Might have been in Switzerland possibly that year. And we were following them and half of the field was made up of Kiwis. And we just thought, well, that's where it's at. You know, let's get some. And then we came here and and found out that adventure racing is just part of what you do here. You know, going bush and paddling down rivers and... Yeah, it's just a day out. Yeah, yeah. It's quite an interesting decision. You, you know, you sort of said you you felt like you had it made and you decided to you know, have this almost 180 U-turn and go from academia in, in the UK to an adventure racing engineer in New Zealand. I guess I'd like to understand the the thought process that goes in from, you know, a lot of people would, would look at that and go, hey, great job, you know, like, you know, I'm, I'm moving up in academia and I'm you know, doing the right things and and that, you know, to throw it all away, or well, not throw it all away, but to take there's such a big pivot would be a, you know, a risk. I didn't want to be a lecturer who'd only been through the academic system. My favorite lecturers had all come back from industry. So even if I wanted to carry on in, in academia, you know, I thought, well, I can go back. I'll go get some experience, work out what these equations mean in the real world and then come back with some interesting stories. So I think I satisfied myself that one way or another I needed to go to industry, get some practical experience and and then possibly go back. Yeah, Uh, And it didn't really matter to me where I did that, I suppose. Mm -hmm. I had no idea what New Zealand was going to be like. Yeah, So I I got all my paperwork, I got my residency, but I'd never even been here. <laughs> I just sold everything I had, you know, and um, I didn't even want to leave the UK, really, probably if I'm honest. I wasn't running away from anything. I really missed my family, and I didn't have a problem with the UK at all. But I suppose in my mind I thought I can go there, try it, see what happens, and worst case, you yeah. know, I always left enough money in the bank account to get me home. Yeah. But, yeah, I'm still here. How long ago was that? 2002, I came here. So. Wow, it's worked out pretty good, I'd say. Oh, I love it. 
you couldn't pay me to go back to the UK. Really? Sorry, British people out there. <laughs> if you said you'd give me my annual salary just to go back to the UK and live there and I didn't have to do any work, mm. I'd rather stay here and work. Really? Mm. That's cool. And then I guess the endurance sort of area or the, the adventure racing, did that sort of, once you moved to New Zealand, is that where it sort of really took off? Probably took off in my own head. <laughs> I enjoyed it. Sport-wise, I was never brilliant at anything. I'd played rugby most of my life, but that's because I was a big kid and I got stuck in the front row. And I was never great, but with endurance sport, you don't necessarily need, sorry, endurance sport people, but you can get by without a heap of ability. Mm -hmm. You just substitute hard work. You know, if you're prepared to graft and get it done and suffer a wee bit, that goes a long way. It's probably a good analogy for life, though, isn't it? I think well, that. possibly, yeah, yeah. And it, it's a there's a thinking element as well. To you need a strategy. I thought I was clever back then as well, you know. So you, you often need a strategy, um, a nutrition plan, how you prepare. There's more to it than just turning up on the day. Yeah, definitely. You can substitute a bit of smarts. Yeah, yeah. And, and how many different adventure endurance events have you clocked up? You know, since what, 18 years. Oh, I don't know. Um, like, do you do one every few months? Do you do one a year? Or is it? I like, used to. Yeah. Like when I first came to New Zealand, I would enter every race that I could find. I think I was racing about every three or four weeks on average, which no coach would recommend, but I just loved it. And it got me around the country. It just sold a house in the UK, so I, I was well-funded. And I traveled all over the country racing, and it was amazing. I don't know if you know, so it, it hasn't been like that the whole time. I, I forest gumped one day. I just stopped. I split up with the ex-partner, met a new partner. So if you know, she wasn't really into me running around the hills all day. She'll deny that, but maybe I felt guilty. I don't know. And I didn't cope well with not being at the top of the game. I suppose it's like professional sports people. Like you're doing really well and then one day maybe you back off and you start to get slowly worse. And and I just stopped. I stopped completely. Stopped training, drank a lot of beer, put on probably about 30 kilos. That would have been 2005 maybe. And then, you know, we had a family and, and then the road – back just kind of we lived opposite princess margaret hospital near um it was coffee culture back then there's zeros now but um i couldn't go in there i couldn't be around sporty people people in lycra and because i just i was embarrassed i was out of shape and i just yeah it was a really strange time did you make a conscious decision to throw in the towel or did you was it just sort of like i can't be bothered today and then tomorrow, oh, I didn't miss it yesterday. So, or was it sort of like, hey, I've had enough of this now. I'm going to give myself a rest or give myself a break or whatever the reason may have been? My training regime was definitely unsustainable. You know, to train, I'm sure there's lots of people who are listening who triathletes, multi sporters. You know, if you do two or three runs a week, two or three bikes a week, two or three kayaks a week, and then you throw in a bit of, you know, stretching and support work, that's a lot of hours. And I couldn't sustain it, so I just kind of stopped. Maybe at the start I thought I would get back at some point or I would just take a break, but 
just got deeper and deeper into the hole. Yeah. By the time I realized where I was, yeah. you know, I couldn't run 5K anymore. Really? I put on 30 kilos. If I gave you a 30-kilo yeah. backpack right now yes. and said, go for a run, how far do you think you'd get? Yeah, probably not 5K. Jeepers. So was it a you'd overdone it physically or you'd overdone it mentally or a mixture of both? Probably mentally, I think. My priorities were based around training, you know, not a relationship, not my career, not people. Not even sure, looking back, how much I enjoyed it. Like the balance, I didn't have balance. You know, Mm -hmm. we talk a, a lot about balance and how important it is. I didn't have it. It wasn't there. I didn't know what the right thing to do was. I just, what I had, what I was doing was not balanced and it wasn't sustainable and I just ran away from it and hid I think yeah it's probably a trap for a lot of people you know that sort of get into something and they become quite good at it is that you sort of lose that balance of your life and I think particularly when people are you know get very successful at something particular your identity becomes quite involved in that you know and it's like you identify with that as you it's like I am a a rower or I am an endurance athlete or I am or whatever it is and then I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think what you're sort of saying is that when that happened and all of a sudden you weren't Andy the adventure endurance racer, you were trying to figure out. There was nothing left probably. It's it's almost like a small mini crisis phase, isn't it? And I think a lot of professionals have that professional athletes is when they you know they finish up and they retire and these days because they go so hard so young they can be 30 years old and retire and then go, who am I? Yeah. And um, you said another thing that was quite interesting, and, and you, know, you said you were sort of focused on yourself a little bit. And I, I, that's one thing I, I found, you know, I've, I've nowhere near in the level that you've done, but I've run a marathon and, yeah. you know, Sally's done mm-hmm. an Ironman and stuff. And um, I, I sort of seen it before, and it's, it's quite a selfish thing. You know, you really can't, you don't have a lot of time. Like if you've got a job and you've got to fit, you know, I think Sally was training 11 or 12 times per week for her Ironman, wow. like just nuts stuff. You know, she was falling asleep in the car at the traffic lights, you know, like yeah. it's like, and you just don't have much time for life. And if you have a partner, they've got to be incredibly supportive and understanding of the sacrifice and they have to make a sacrifice too. Yeah. And you can't have much else. It's quite a unique sort of, Maybe that's the same with anyone, any sport or business or if someone's obsessed with something, you sort of need a pretty substantial supporter behind you, don't you? Yeah. Whilst I had a partner and we were doing it together, it worked. Mm-hmm. But when that situation changed, then I couldn't really justify it anymore. Yeah, yeah. Since then, so that was 2009? Yeah, ish. Yeah, there, yeah. Was a, there was a dark period there. I wasn't doing any exercise at all. Yeah, and you're working still? Yep, as a mechanical engineer. Obviously, you've come out of that now. Where was the catalyst for change and what was that like to where you went from being, you know, not being able to run five kilos and 30 kilos overweight or heavier than you were and, yeah. and being afraid to be around, you know, sporty people? Yeah. What happened, that transition? What happened? Truth, I was having a shower. So the shower was in the bath. I went to step over the side of the bath and I lost my footing and my feet were going under me like Bambi on ice and I could feel myself falling backwards. And I was aware that behind me was the kind of this corner of a wall. And I just had this vision of me slipping backwards, cracking my head on the wall and dying, climbing out of the bath at the ripe old age of 40, you know. And I was heavy, I was overweight didn't have great coordination or balance and it just hit me at that point in time like what have you done 
you've let, let yourself go. You know, I was, and yeah, just for me, that was the moment when I just decided that I had to improve my situation. Mm-hmm. Maybe I didn't really set goals to, to go anywhere, do anything, but just not die from being unhealthy and unfit. Yeah. That's a pretty self-aware decision though, isn't it? Like I don't, that's quite a sort of introspective moment to have that climbing out of a bath. And then so, <laughs> and then so what happened from there? So you like, do you go and buy a pair of running shoes? And I suppose like most opportunities, you know, opportunities always come along, but you've got to be open to them. I started working with a, a bunch of lads from Scarlet Hydraulics. They were into mountain biking. I can remember the first mountain bike ride they dragged me out on. I turned up and my mountain bike, I was running slicks on it and riding it to work. And we went out Bottle Lake Forest. And, and I turned up with my mountain bike with slicks on, trying to ride through the sand with slicks. And they must have thought, who's this joker? But they just dragged me out. And that was the very first ride. Shane Brookland, little mention from there. It just it just got me back into it. And the guys are really supportive. Yeah. And um, it kind of went from there, really. Yeah. And you started to make progress. and Definitely biking. You know, yeah. um, I was still too heavy to run at that point in time. You know, I could jump on a bike and, and ride. And the fitness actually came back, you know, the cardiovascular side of things came back reasonably quickly, I'd say. And then just put everything I had into, into biking. Yeah. It's quite hard when you sort of start again or like, you know, like I've I've had periods where I haven't sort of thrown the whole towel on, but I've, I remember we, Sally and I went for a run one day and she was training for the marathon, her Iron Man, and I hadn't done anything. You know, I was just sort of like fun running almost. Went out for a run together, and she's always run faster than me anyway. And I just had this like bugger it, I've done with running. So I started to do more strength stuff then. And then I've got back into running again. But I found it quite frustrating when I started again because in your head, you remember what it's like to run fast and you remember your times and you, you know, you can't help but remember your 5K time. Mm. And you're like, gosh, I'm running, you know, like. 3Ks in the same time we used to run 5Ks. Was that yeah. tough getting started or you didn't didn't really think about that sort of stuff? You're just like, hey, I'm enjoying this. We're into it. Don't even know if I enjoyed it, to be honest, at the start. <laughs> Maybe I certainly didn't track what I was doing in terms of time or speed. I just tried to develop the habit, just get out there and, and do it and slowly just try and be better and feel better. And then cycling was your real thing from then, was it? Yeah, yeah. Definitely the running was harder on the body and I struggled with it. You know, the biking was was easy. I've, and we had a young family by this point in time as well. So I could just jump on the bike. It'd be like, I'll be gone for an hour, go and do my ride, come back home and, and get back on family detail. Yeah. And do you remember your first event back? Was that significant or a milestone or just sort of? Good question. I don't know if it was the first, but one I remember was the Geraldine. There's a Geraldine mountain bike race. So Shane from Scarlet's, he hooked me up with a with a faster bike and uh, it was kind of the, the first of the 29ers and it was very much a, a 29er compatible race and there was a bunch of us went down there and there was a bit of chat, you know, about mm-hmm. who'd do well and who'd, who'd beat who and mm-hmm. I worked hard and... Yeah, it was fun again. Got a good, got a good result. Yeah, and I enjoy, I do enjoy doing well. I mean, who doesn't enjoy doing well? And I won't say winning because there's many forms of winning, but 
I was proud of my effort. Yeah, uh, that's one thing I, you know, that I enjoy the, the events I've done is I've never felt like I'm racing against someone else. I mean, you're a bit different having a bit of banter between mates and maybe yeah. everyone sort of had that. But yeah. that's one thing I find quite really enjoyable. This, you know, like you might in an event there might be half a dozen people that are really trying to actually, you know, there might be a professional and they've got to try and get on the podium to get some prize money. Mm. But everyone else is there is really just trying to do better than they did last year or yeah. the last time. And I've, I think that's quite a um, unique environment to be in. I've quite enjoyed it. I think about it a lot, actually, how we constantly shoot ourselves in the foot by comparing ourselves at events against other people. Whether you get a, a place on the podium or whether you come dead last is more of a function of who else turns up and how good the field is than your own ability. You know, you could win or come last and have exactly the same race and you would feel completely different about what you achieved. It's a really interesting point. It is, isn't it? That goes beyond sporting events though I think you know like I think that if you just looked at life you might look at it if you took what you've got now in a snapshot and say well hey would you be happy with this and you might go absolutely or no I wouldn't be but if you then put some comparable people in there you might go I might change the whole scenario yeah if you never compare yourself to the Joneses you'd probably be quite happy yeah I think is it Theodore Roosevelt I might be mirroring this up he said comparison is the thief of joy Mm. and that's so true isn't it yeah But it's a great benchmark as well. You know, I think about sporting competition and Mm. that's what pushes us and drives us is that, you know, that friendly competition. You and I go out in the garden now to do some push-ups and and we're both going to push each other, but we're going to do that by trying to beat each other. Yeah, it's that nice balance. Competition is fun and enjoyable and engaging, but you need to be able to switch it off, I think, as well. And, you know, whenever I look at, um, you know, I've watched that Michael Jordan documentary originally. Have you seen that? Yeah. Yeah, and just like he's just competitive to a fault, you know, mm-hmm. like to mm-hmm. the point where he's just like, and I think whenever I've, I listen to interviews or watch things about people like that, it's just they, like Richie McCaw's the same, you know, he mm-hmm. seems like the nicest guy ever, but when it comes to winning and losing, you just wouldn't tolerate it. It doesn't matter if it's a World Cup final or a game of cards. But, well, that's um, their job, right? That's their yeah. job is to go out and win. I think there's a bit of that in, I was going to say all of us, but perhaps just in me, but in a lot of us. Certainly better than not winning. <laughs> <laughs> and so some of the things that I've, you know, I've known you for and that have interested me a lot and in in a also, you know, equally as inspirational are some of the things that you've done that haven't been events. You know, you've sort of created things on your own will and and sort of gone from there well you can't win or lose those right <laughs> if you create your own event yeah. if it's you versus yourself or you versus a thing or a mountain whatever that's probably why i do these things is because then it's me pushing myself versus myself or you know alongside other people as well is even better than than versing them and, yeah yeah in the lockdown i watched you do your everest run talk me through that or explain what it was first maybe oh well everesting is is a thing it's certainly become a lot more popular over lockdown from what i've been looking at and interesting the one of the first people to do everesting george mallory the george mallory's grandson i think he did his first one in australia but has also done a bunch on the Banks Peninsula as well. So apparently, so the story goes, you can fact check me, to train to climb Everest, he got on his bike, 
probably not the best training to do for climbing Everest. <laughs> and he rode up and down a hill. For example, he's done Hilltop on the Banks Peninsula. It's a well-known climb. He went up and down there until he achieved the same vertical meters as the height of Everest, 8848. So he kind of went up, I, I don't know, say 15 times or whatever it is. Yeah. And then a guy in Australia, Andy Van Bergen, He's kind of turned this into like a hall of fame. So you do your Everest in and then you send your results to him and, and you get into this hall of fame. And who doesn't want to be in a hall of fame? It's it's quite a clever thing he's done. I think I saw a post the other day because I follow the Everest in people on Facebook. There's been 7,000 successful Everest ins so far. So now you can do it on a bike. You can do it indoors on a trainer. It has to be a specific type of trainer. You can do it um, outdoors on foot, and maybe that's it at the moment. So you can do it on foot now as well. Yeah. So that originally it was just on the bike, yeah. then it went indoors, and then you can do it outdoors on, on foot as well. Yeah, It's quite clever what they've done, the Everesting people. They've got these little badges. You know, we all love badges <laughs> and gold stars. So yeah. you go into Everesting, you can search, for example, for me, Andy Beal, and there's a bunch of badges. Now, what? brilliant about it it doesn't just show me the badges i have it shows me the have ones i haven't got yet so i haven't got the double and triple everesting for example i haven't got the the everesting on the bike on gravel so now these things kind of they're in the back of your mind that you might do them one day so and i still don't have the one on foot as well because i couldn't actually record although i did this in the garden i couldn't really record it to a satisfactory standard to submit it so mm -hmm. i might have to do that again but it <laughs> so was tell, always tell me what you did yeah it was all, all, yeah let me very paraphrase you found 10 steers yeah. in your garden you yeah. ran up and down them until you'd run eight thousand meters yeah i mean i, I think at the start of lockdown because i'd been thinking about doing the everest in on foot and the virtual everest in on the bike so indoors on the trainer I've been thinking, they've been in the back of my mind for probably a year or more, you know, kind of just sitting there and waiting for me to get to them. And then I suppose lockdown provided that opportunity. I may have told a couple of people that's always, the, you know, the, 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 the key, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm going to do this or, or I want to do this. So, And I did the one on the bike first. Quite During lockdown. Yep. yep. Quite fortunate to have some concrete stairs in the garden and... I thought, well, I can go up and down these stairs. I was a, the plan originally was to do the St. Martin stairs. I don't know if you know the ones. Yeah, I do know those yeah. ones. Yeah. So I was going to do those. I just thought stairs would be easier on the body. Not sure if it's true or not. I haven't done the done the comparison yet. So anyway, I found this set of steps in the garden. You figured it out. How many times did you have to go up and down the stairs? Do you know, five thousand. Five thousand times up and down the stairs. Mm. Does down count? Is it just the up? like you know like you were measuring distance was it like do you run back down or is it you do do one and just sort of walk back down the stairs and run back up and uh so no running no running. Any, there was no running at any point in time it was just walking like even from the start yeah i paced myself with a yeah. walk yeah you just count the ups yeah in hindsight probably 10 steps was a bit short i got dizzy turning around somebody said that to me beforehand they've got better forward thinking than me because i didn't really <laughs> see it as a thing but yeah, yeah. it definitely was five thousand times yeah bit. and the downs i mean anybody who's done a lot of downhill especially if you're a little bit older like me it's the downhill that that did the damage yeah down, the cool down thing down about everesting actually is if anybody wants to try it on foot 
the rules say you don't have to walk or run downhill. You can go downhill any way you want. So if you want to climb up a kid's slide, for example, yeah. and slide down, oh, that, yeah. that counts. Because, yeah, you almost double your distance by walking back down. Yeah. Man, and then, you know, like you've done that, I know you've done the, the world record spin class as yeah. well, which I was lucky enough to witness. Yeah. That was um, 26. 26, yeah. 26, 26 hours. hours. When you come up with an idea in your head yeah. and you're like, I could do that, what's that process like? Like when I have some, I've had some ideas and sometimes like something comes into my head and then I just really quickly try and dismiss it quickly. So I don't <laughs> add it. Like over the lockdown, I saw this guy on, on Facebook do a thousand burpees in a day. And like just for a brief second, that kind of entered my head and I was just like, oh. <laughs> no, yeah. get rid of that quickly. It's going to come back. I know. You haven't got rid of it. Oh, You've just put it in the corner. Yeah. I kind of think about like almost like the angel and devil on your shoulders almost. You know, yeah. what's it like for you when, when an idea comes like, hey, I should run up my stairs 5,000 times? Does it take a bit of contemplation or is it just sort of like are you committed straight away? All I can think right now is I'm doing the maths on the 1,000 burpees in a day. should be doable. And, mm-hmm. and those are the challenges I love, the ones where you don't know if they're possible. And the only way to find out is, is to go do it. You know, if somebody says, I've got a challenge for you, and you know you can do it, is it really a challenge? But to especially, you know, the thousand, and we're going to have to do that now. God damn it, I shouldn't have told you. <laughs> Sorry, but that sounds epic. Yeah. Um, what goes? I, I think it is that it's it's curiosity. Yeah. Is it possible? Well, let's go and find out. And what's the worst thing that can happen when you're trying to do your thousand burpees? You get part way through, and you find out on that day it's not that you can't do it, but maybe that day you can't do it, and then you go off and you train for it, and and now your life has purpose again. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think the the curiosity is an interesting point. You know, is it possible? I think that there's like emotional risk and danger for people taking on things they don't know the answer. I think a lot of people don't like, me included, you know, like don't like taking on things and not sure if they can succeed in them. You know, your risk of failure is higher than if you do something that you know you can. Is it really failure? If you got to 600 burpees and you had to stop for whatever reason, yeah. you know, would that be failure? It's not failure. Yeah. You've just done 600 burpees. Yeah. <laughs> it depends on your measurement of um, how you define And you could have set your target at 500, not 1,000, right? Yeah. So you pick a, a random target and um, mm. I don't know if it's black and white failure. Yeah, I guess my point is it's yeah. in that challenging what you're – capable of is that you actually find out what's really living is you know I think that it's in that moment when you sort of go I really wasn't sure if I could do that and Mm -hmm. I did it that's when people really discover potential and being alive Mm -hmm. I think is that what this experience has been like for you I don't know I mean I've failed the first time I I tried Everest and I failed I tried to do it up and down Dyer's Pass and I got to the halfway mark and my back was in pieces I was in so much pain and It was taking way longer than I'd planned. It was just everything was going wrong. I rarely pull the pin on things, but but that day I just knew, you know, I was halfway and I was felt like I was already done. Mm -hmm. So I just thought, right, that's the rehearsal. I'll go away and take that information and and I learned a lot, right? In that I mean, that's the whole thing of failure, isn't it? We, you know, I'm telling my kids failure is good and that's when you learn and you know, so you take the lessons from that failure. 
I don't even like saying the word, but mm. you take the lessons from that and then you go again and that's how we grow or get better. Yeah, it's I the, don't know if I answered your question. No, well. no, but I think it's an interesting point. It's, the, it's sort of almost the emotional courage to get back on and give another yeah. whack that is the, the real win. Do you know what? I think there's a part of me actually enjoys failure as well. Like if something beats me, that's fine. Like that thing beat me or that person beat me or that, that's all good. I think I almost, I can take as much pleasure from, from that failure. Like just having tried and reached my limit. I think maybe that's what it is actually is finding your limits is a cool thing. And that's probably what happened when I was about 30. And I, I, I made a lot of 30 year olds who possibly want to find out what they're capable of. You know, how fast can I go? How far can I run? And uh, I meet a lot of people who kind of want to find out what they're capable of. And that's probably where I was at, at the time and maybe just enjoyed finding. Maybe it says something about who and what you are, how it helps you with your identity. You know, what am I? So you push your boundaries in various directions and mm. then and then you find out some things about yourself. It's almost like a vision of self-discovery, isn't it? Yeah, sort of, I think so. I think a lot of people don't know what they're capable of, I think would be an observation that there's probably a lot of people that could do far more than they actually think. And I think it's only in this, you know, this sort of things that you do where you sort of you commit to these, what most people would probably consider rather outrageous ideas. And it's sort of in that that you find out what you you are capable of and it probably is more than you think. It's maybe again it's quite a nice analogy in the sporting endurance world that there's probably other areas in your life or in our lives and everyone's lives that you're not doing as as well or doing the things that you probably have the ability to do. Yeah, a lot of people talk to me about the things I do or they see me do, and they say I could never do that. I'd be like, yeah, you can if you want to. And I think that's the, you know, you've got to want to do it, whatever it is. And not everybody wants to do the things I do. They hold no appeal whatsoever. If people come to me and they say, you know what, I think I'd like to do that or something like that. Or, and a lot of, it's amazing how many people come to me and say, I could never do what you do or do what you've done. But then that develops into a conversation where actually they're strangely attracted to it, let's say, and they they want to give it a go. So then, well, okay, let's break it down into, you know, what you need to do to, to make this happen. And, you know, people talk about building a wall one brick at a time. Amos, my son, he came up with plucking a bird one feather at a time. And, and quite often that's all it is. You know, you go off to build your wall one brick at a time and, and you build as much of the wall as you can. You may finish the wall you'd planned or, or maybe not. But. Yeah. The best advice I was giving when I was did my run was don't run 42Ks, run one kilometer 42 times. And like just mentally it right. framed it. And you know, it was just something, you know, yeah. someone just said something and it stuck with me. And you yeah. could, I got lots of advice, but that was the one thing that stuck with me and was far more manageable was to yeah. run one kilometer, right. you know, 42 times than it was to try and take on a, you know, which is the wall analogy, I guess. It's always a mental game. I yeah. think it's always a mental game anyway, like physically. I mean, humans, we're, we're great things. If we want to do something invariably, well, physically, we can. It's, it is that pushing yourself, digging deep. I, I don't know, whatever. Everybody's got, I think every, a lot, we've got all got our own way of thinking about a challenge and, and breaking it down. 
And sometimes when I'm trying to help people work towards their own challenges, it's working more on the mental side. Sorry, people, but you probably think I'm training you physically, but it is invariably mentally. Mm. For me, I you know, running is my sort of, I'm saying air quotes, endurance field very loosely. When I am running, I feel like it's a constant battle between my mind and my body. And like every second, my body's like, you know what you should do? You should stop. You know, you should have a break. Just relax. You know, oh, the, the light's red. Stop. Or oh, the yeah. dog needs to go to the stop. You know, like, yeah. and you kind of start creating all these excuses in your head about why you should stop or why you should break or why you should take the shorter route home or yeah. not go as far or it's raining or it's cold or whatever it is. Yeah. And then that's the kind of one, you know, the devil and angel analogy again on the other shoulder is your mind, which is like, you came to do this. This is, you know, don't cheat yourself. Like, keep yeah. going. Don't listen to that other voice. And it's like, particularly when you're doing something like running or cycling, you have a lot of time in your own head. And, um, you know, you can go out for hours and just have that internal conversation with yourself about your body wanting to stop and yeah. your mind saying, that's the last thing we should do. And so your brain's getting these signals from all over your body saying, Fatigue happening here, 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 fatigue everywhere, heart and lungs, muscles, I don't know, pain from a blister or something. And your brain's receiving all these signals and saying, well, I don't know if you plan to do this, Maddie, for another four minutes or another four days, but we, we can't carry on doing this indefinitely. So maybe think about stopping. And that's a good thing that, that could keep you alive. You're going to get those those messages, those voices saying, you know, you should stop. And definitely some people will generate an excuse at that point in time, find a reason to stop, and, and that's fine. I rode a marathon years ago. The first time I got overweight, I couldn't run. So I rode a marathon. A year later, I rode 100 Ks. It took me roughly eight hours. I don't know if you've sat on a Concept2 machine for anything more than sort of 40 minutes, but the pain in your buttocks <laughs> is, is incredible. It's like two hot pokers, one in each cheek. It just hurts and it burns. Well, it did for me anyway. And this would be an hour in to, you know, an eight-hour row. My body is screaming, stop, get off. And I'd say, okay, that's fine. I hear you, buttocks. But you hurt me so much. You try and hurt me so much that I cannot physically carry on rowing. You know, my body couldn't do that. It couldn't make me stop. If I was going to stop, then it would be, I'm choosing to stop. Yeah. It couldn't make me. Yes. I was very uncomfortable for seven hours. It was a great lesson in, in that I just thought, well, I'll just carry on and for as long as I can until I physically cannot sit on this machine anymore. And it, and it didn't happen. You got there. When you have, you said before that you have thrown in the towel on a couple of attempts or times or events or whatever they are. What's the difference that time? We sort of talked about that, those two voices. What's the difference between when you know, hey, look, this is actually silly, like, you know, I've got to stop now? Uh, Permanent physical damage. If I think I'm not going to recover, from what I'm doing in a couple of days or a couple of weeks or whatever, and it's going to cause permanent damage, I won't do it. It's not worth it. It was. I don't know if you've read David Goggins' book, Can't Hurt Me. I haven't read it's it. Epic. I mean, he's he's next level, and he's got a great story. It's, um, it's a very powerful book, but he would definitely 
push beyond that point, you know, when he was, there's a great story about him trying to break the world pull-up record. And I don't want to spoil it for anyone, but he's in danger of doing permanent physical damage and just stopping or giving up is not not even an option for him, you know. Whereas I would at that, probably. Mm-hmm. I mean, I wasn't there and it's hard to know, but mm-hmm. if I had medical people telling me that, you know, you could die, I'd probably stop. Yeah. And what the times that you have stopped, what are you like afterwards? You know, you've talked about being competitive and, and stuff like, do you, maybe it's changed as, you, as you've got older, you know, and you become a bit more wiser and, and you don't, identify with that not succeeding in that particular attempt as I mean for me like I remember when I, I failed my driver's license when I was 16 or something and like I could barely sleep for like a week until I got to do it again and pass you know I couldn't right. handle it you know like and it was not that it's the same sort of area no, I've, I've, no, this, I've failed my car driving test for so I passed my motorbike test first and I failed, failed my car test first time as well and I just you know there were a couple of things I didn't do right because of the pressure of the day got to me and I don't think it weighed that heavy on my mind. I thought, oh, well, I'll just mm-hmm. do it again at some point. But obviously for you, yeah. very different experience. Very different. And so are you like that now with, you know, like these times where you've had to throw in the towel? Are you sort of like, oh, that didn't work out? I'll yeah, I'd, do it again. I'd, I'd probably there was some detail or something I didn't quite get right. I, I'm not the world's best planner. I don't like planning to the nth detail because you don't always know what's going to unfold. And sometimes events or things unfold in a way you hadn't expected and you find yourself in a place you hadn't prepared for and maybe you can't cope with it or you haven't got the means to deal with it. And that means you stop, but you learn for next time. Mm. So you go, okay, I can do that thing again. You can take your test again, Maddie. Yeah. It's okay. Yeah. You know, and next time you won't make the same mistake again, right? Yeah, totally. I understand where you're coming from, absolutely, but it was—it just wasn't like that for me, and it was—it's still not. Like I don't know whether it is like so with the marathon. You know, it was after my accident, and I said I've got to run the marathon, and then I committed to doing it under four hours. And you mentioned it before it was the—it was the, when I, as soon as I verbalised it to another person, that's when it became real. And if I had run at four oh one, I would have been devastated. <laughs> like as weird as it is, you know, like you know, like I was told I'd never run again and yeah. it was still a, an effort that I'm very very proud of but I just yeah. know like and so it was the point where like 401 was and failure might not be the right term but it wasn't I would have done it again right I would have come back and run it again what did you run 357 right yeah okay and so so for me for it wasn't conceivable like it was like there's no I knew yeah. the speed on my watch I needed to yeah. run I knew yeah. my mind and so just like there was nothing that was I didn't have a plan b for it it was very and I did a lot of mental work and um I used affirmations a lot I don't right. know if you've ever used those before but it was in what what were your affirmations well I always had this perception that I was a slow runner Right. And, you know, a lot of people would say, you know, a four-hour marathon is, is relatively slow. Mm-hmm. And that guy did it in 159 or something. But anyway, and so I always had this idea that I was quite a slow runner. Mm-hmm. And I had this sort of epiphany one day and I was, and then when I was training and I was like, my legs will never do something that my mind doesn't think is possible. My legs can't run a sub-four-hour marathon if in my head I think I'm a slow runner. Mm-hmm. So I came up with this concept and, well, not concept, but I'd learned about affirmations and how you can reprogram your brain. 
Mm-hmm. So I've got to convince my brain that I, I am a fast runner. So every time I had this thought when I was, even if it just wasn't verbally, because I found out I was actually telling other people about it. I'd be like, they're like, how far did you run? How long does that take? And I'd be like, oh, it's pretty good because I'm a slow runner. So, right. so it was really yeah. like, it was, yeah. I was really you know, negatively mm-hmm. languaging myself. Mm-hmm. So every time I thought about it or said it out loud, I would repeat three times out loud, I'm a fast runner and on Saturday, November 19th, I will run a sub four-hour marathon in Queenstown. And just every time, and I don't know whether that made a difference or not, but it was, that's, I used it affirmations. It for you, It right? did, yeah, I, totally I, did. I think that's, um don't think it matters what techniques you use, but you found something there that works for you and yeah, that's good because I think it's important to have a head game, you know, what's the best head game? And it's the one that, that works for you and obviously did. Yeah, I mean, everyone has their own sort of way to try and approach it. But I think that um, for me, that was an interesting lesson that your body can't do something your head doesn't think is possible. So you firstly have to think, which is different to what you say, because you kind of say like, I like the idea of not knowing if it's possible. You know, I like the idea of sort of curiosity more. You know, I saw your brain tick away when I said the thousand burpees and you're sort of going, yeah. I wonder if it's possible, whereas, you know, I'm probably a bit more conservative when I say I want to make sure that I can do it before I take on the challenge. There's is- a lot of unknowns in that. We had a bit of a challenge at uh, at the gym last week, and I've, I've got a bit of carpet burn just above the knee now from doing burpees, and I, I never saw those coming. What was the challenge you did? Uh, we just had a bit of a training showdown. Mm-hmm. And between every block of exercises was, was 10 burpees, but mm-hmm. it's certainly towards the end, I was certainly peeling myself up off the floor and obviously dragging dragging myself a wee bit. And I think when you go to do a 1,000, you're going to find out, you know, if your technique isn't great or you're not doing it, you know, that's when if you haven't got a strong core, I don't know, you're probably going to end up feeling it in the lower back. And it's probably not just about whether you're fit enough yeah i think i run this uh, i say run i loosely sort of facilitate a mindset session um for some groups and one of the things i i use and um i completely stole it off tony robbins when i went to his thing and i I sort of changed it slightly but i would say you know who here could run a marathon who here could walk out right so in in the clothes you're wearing or put on the running shoes and 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 run 42ks and and no one puts their hand up Mm. and i say now Forget the the circumstances that led to this, but here's a situation. The the five people you love the most in the world will die unless for whatever reason you can put on a pair of running shoes, walk outside, it'll be disgusting, it'll be ugly, and you'll hate it, but you'll keep one foot in front of the other until mm. you run 42K. So yeah. I said, now who can run a marathon? And everyone yeah. puts their hand up. Yeah. And the thing is, what I find and the, the point of that exercise is that nothing's changed physically. You haven't done any training, you haven't done any coaching, you haven't learned about running or gone any sort of you know information. The only thing that's changed for you is the why that was driving it for you. And so I guess that exercise illustrates the fact that you're probably capable. You could, most people could do but it. But you're or, prepared to hurt now, right? Yeah. yeah that, I think that's the, yeah, that's, you probably weren't prepared to hurt before, but now you are. Yeah. You know, and I've used similar things in the past. I probably don't use them now, but in the past when I, probably some of my first endurance events when, when I used to really struggle to get to the end, I, I used to play those. I'd imagine the wife and kids are in a car and they're upside down. Mm-hmm. I've got to get there as quick as possible. If I go too fast, I'm not going to blow up and not get there. But the sooner I get there, the better their chances of survival. Yeah. I imagine that I'm in Iraq and I'm trying to get to the Syrian border yeah. and I'm just trying to move as quick as possible. And if I don't, I'm going to get caught and tortured. It keeps you moving. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Just little games you play in your head to try and... <laughs> I was always taught that the last, uh, you know, the, it's always the last 
20%. Regardless, I find it doesn't matter how far I'm running or burpees I'm doing or if you, you know, it's like when you go for a drive in a car, you know, and if you set out to drive from, you know, Christchurch to Dunedin, it seems to take you 10 seconds to get to Ashburton. Yeah. But if you set out to drive from here to Ashburton, it takes for ages. And it's just that perception and whether you're you know if you go out to run 10ks and you run eight the last two are hard but if you go out to run 20 the first 10 disappear as soon as you start thinking about the end (laughs) and stopping it just all gets hard i for me i think it's the last 10 percent yeah it doesn't like you say it doesn't matter if it's 10 percent of 5ks or 500 it the switch goes, yeah. your head goes to a different place. It does, doesn't it? Yeah. And and all of a sudden it's incredibly hard and it hurts. Yeah. I remember you in the world record, the world record spin class, and um, and you were just outrageously positive the entire time and it was the last like hour and I was talking to you and there was almost like there was no one home. It was sort of, <laughs> you were in the darkest spot you've ever been. And again, it's just that last 10%. You know you're close to finishing, I guess that's what it is. And mentally you just go, so close, I'm almost there. I don't know, yeah, I... I don't know what does happen. Somebody somewhere must have done research on this and there's probably books on it. Maybe we should find out. But maybe your mind just starts thinking about other things. Now what can go wrong? Because you've got most of it in in the Mm. bag. So the mindset definitely changes. Interesting. And when I think about you, one of the other things that you you did is then, you know, a couple of years ago you had another sort of career change, you know, and you were you're an engineer and I know you you, you love the organization that you still do a bit of work with yeah, now. Yeah. And um, you know, I've met them as well and, and they are fantastic. And you sort of you went from being a an engineer at a company you love to pursue training people. Mm. My assumption is that you, you know, it was a passion and you followed your passion. Would that be fair? Yes. But it I took two spin classes in the winter just to keep the cycling going in winter. It's good to have routine. I just enjoyed that environment, that group environment, working hard. But the classes were kind of never, I mean, we all have our favorite instructors, but I think I always kind of wanted to do my own. In fact, I was thinking the other day back to, my very first spin class in probably the late 90s, and I remember making a mixtape for the instructor, and he even used it one week. It was terrible. I'm embarrassed about how bad it was because I didn't really consider the the beat of the music or the highs and the lows or anything, but I made this mixtape for him because I thought it was it would work. And that was probably, even back then, I thought it would be good to lead my own class one day and do mm-hmm. my own thing. My very first um, spin instructor, Dave, he's like an ex-Marine. So he's, he's crazy. He's crazier than me, but he's pretty nuts. So it was great. It was inspirational in, in that sense. And he'd play like Marilyn Manson and Motorhead and mm-hmm. like it was full on. Then leaving Cardiff because that was in Cardiff and doing spin classes elsewhere. I suppose I always wanted to get back to something which was a bit more full on and yeah felt more like um, Navy SEAL training, <laughs> you know, just just working hard and just – yeah, because you can do that. I mean, you can do that in a gym environment and in a spin class and, yeah. and working hard. And so I started taking my own classes. I did the group fitness qualification. I only went to study personal training really because I didn't feel like the group fit qualification was quite enough to be looking after a room full of people. So – I did the personal training thing and I had it, the qualification, but I didn't really do anything with it. 
Uh, I had a very good job as a mechanical engineer. And a coach, I've had a few coaches over the years and, and some of them have been brilliant. But at the key point was um, one of my coaches, he did an exercise with me identifying strengths. And this is something I, we're not very good at identifying our own strengths because you've got strengths. Your strengths are the things you find real easy to do and you don't think about, you know. You're a good bloke. You you know, you do things for people. And all these things that come really easy to you, you think they're kind of no effort. Actually, the rest of us, the people around you, we think, wow, Matt is amazing at that, that he's got these strengths. But you may or may not know it because you, you do these things without thinking. And it's true of a lot of people. So if you want to know your strengths, people, ask the people around you what they think you're really good at. And I didn't know my strengths, so I did this exercise and I had these list of words and it said tick the words which apply to you. So naturally I picked everything because, you know, you don't want to not be good at loyalty or trust or whatever, you know, all these words. But I was fortunate to have a coach. He said, I'll boil it down to one thing for you. And he said to me, you like helping people. And the penny dropped and I realized that's what I enjoyed and probably what I'd wanted to do my whole life. And then at that point in time, pretty much, it was, how do I do that? And I knew I wasn't, as an engineer, I was fine when I was working with people in a team because I got to help people. But as soon as you put me at a desk in the corner on my own, facing the wall, I'd go mad. Just couldn't cope with it at all. And I suppose... Moving towards personal training gave me that opportunity to help people. And I, yeah, I love it. I absolutely love it. I still sometimes struggle to motivate myself for myself. I struggle to train on my own. But if you said, Andy, come and train with me, I'll go train because it's now it's about you. Even some of the challenges I do, sometimes they are for the people around me as well to motivate them or have them involved you know, the Guinness World Record thing, to do that with with a group of people and not just break a Guinness World Record on my own was I'd wanted to be in the Guinness Book of Records my whole life since I was a little wee kid. But to do it with a group of people and get them through it and involve yourself and, you know, the gym, it was great. It was way better than just stuffing 2,000 marshmallows in my face, for example. Yeah. And... Was it an easy decision? Like it seems like you once you kind of figured out what you were good at and what was what you what drove you, this was sort of like just a, a natural progression rather than a tough challenge to navigate. Uh, it was incredibly hard. Was it? Yeah. Decision. You know, I've got a wife. We'd not long moved house, taken on a second mortgage, kids, and depending on how good a personal trainer you are and, and the facility you work at might determine how much money you make as a trainer. But, you know, there's some people get rich doing it, but I don't know if there's many. It's, you know, you certainly have to work and, and do the time. And like I say, I enjoy helping people, but you've still got to pay the bills. And You've got responsibilities um, when you have a family. I'm not a great salesman either. I mean, even now as a trainer, if if you come to me and you want my help, if you say help me, I'll bend over backwards and it's easy. But if you don't come to me and say I want your help, I'll have it's really hard for me to push myself and my services on you. So I, I'm probably not the world's best trainer in, in that regard because you do have to, you've got a product and you've got to, 
give people, you've got to create this vision of what they might look or feel like or reach their goals. And yeah, I'm certainly working on that. And you say it was, you know, a really tough decision. Was there what helped make it for you? Was there anything particular or was it just sort of like, you know, this is what I really want to do and, you know, this is what makes me happy. And, you know, what you're saying, if I paraphrase it, is you just yeah. sort of followed passion over a paycheck. You've sort of, hey, look, I'm happy to take a pay cut because this is what I feel is really important to me. And yeah. I think that is is probably rare and inspirational but also, you know, quite courageous, I think. I'm 50, so it definitely it helps. Like I'm going to be here for a finite amount of time and a finite amount of time in the, in the workplace as well. I've had money, didn't make me happy. So I suppose we're all looking for happiness in our, in our own way, or things, happiness is, in itself is a discussion. But um, I was quite fortunate in that the team at Home Solutions, they said, look, we'll... So the guys I was doing the engineering with, they said, we'll support you. You can still do a little bit of work with us. And it just took away all the risk, Yeah, really. You know? And then, so I could go and try this thing. And um, it's worked out really well because with solutions, I still – I take the PT skills back there and a bit of physical training and kind of a bit of wellnessy type stuff and – and it's actually really good to be in both worlds. Yeah. As you know, yeah, I can't complain. It's yeah. Really good. Oh, mate, it's a, um, it's a, I highly commend you on the, the courage to do that. That's a thing. And not a lot of many people, when you had, you had, you know, it wasn't nice having their support, I guess, but um, still a tough decision. So I think kudos. I, this might sound a bit weird, but I bike a lot. And um, a friend of mine, got knocked off his bike a few years ago and killed. And for a while after that, I was getting spooked on the bike a lot, especially when, you know, trucks would come by me, say on Main South Road or something. And now I think every, you know, every time I ride, and I ride a lot, every time I ride somewhere, it could be my last. And, and all I want is when I'm lying in the gutter, bleeding out, dying, I just want to be able to go peacefully and say, I did what I wanted to do. I don't want to lie there dying thinking, I wish I'd done X, Y, and Z. Maybe we all do that in a way, but it's important to do what you want to do because you just you never know what's going to happen. Yeah, and I think that's probably the you know one of the definitive points of a successful life is that you know when you do find your time's up, that you go, hey, look, I actually wouldn't change anything. Which is, uh, if you're honest with yourself, you know, it's quite a, there's probably some things you change in your life now that maybe you know. We've not. all got regrets. Yeah. I mean, I, I've done plenty of things I regret, and, you know, especially when I was younger. I was a massive douche. Um, but the, as long as you learn from those experiences, and, mm. you know, fail, learn, grow, move on, you know, repeat. Yeah. When I was in Colombia, I, I went did this Pablo Escobar tour, and they take you to this house at the end. And there's this old guy sitting there, and he has a bit of a chat. And it turns out it's his brother, right? And um, like he's lived this crazy life. He one stage had this you know 
$10 million ransom on his head, and which was huge in those days. And anyway, I, you got to ask him a question, and I mm. asked him if he had any regrets. Mm. And he said the point of life is not to not have regrets, but it's to not make the same mistake over again. And, um, you know, coming from someone like him is, um, you know, you've kind of echoed the similar sentiments, I think. <laughs> my dad, my dad always used to, I don't know how I got so far through this without mentioning dad. Hey, dad. He used to say to me, a mistake is a mistake. If you make the same mistake twice, that's unfortunate. If you make it a third time, that's stupidity, which is harsh, but, but it made me always, you know, I always had that in the back of my mind. Yeah. You know, uh, I was allowed to make the same mistake twice, but not, not, not three, three times, times and yeah. not have him find out about it anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's good dead advice. One of the other things that, you know, you're very um, humble about is some of your, you know, charitable endeavors that you've had over the years. One thing you said to me when we did the, you know, this is just a, like a side note, when we did the world record was that you said there's no point doing it if we're not raising someone money for someone that needs it. And I thought, what a cool way to look at it. You know, if there's more people that had that attitude, the world would be a, a better place. Charity has changed. Sometimes forget how old I am, but go back 30 years. And I think if you, you know, when you ran your marathon, it was pretty rare for people to run marathons back then, say 30, 40 years ago. And, and if you were going to run a marathon, you'd get all your friends to sponsor you. Imagine trying to get sponsored to run a marathon now. And, you know, you'd, you'd probably need to be twice the weight you are or you'd have to have one leg or something, you know, to get people to put their hands in their pockets. And yeah. there's a lot of charities out there now doing a lot of good work. So I definitely grew up in an era where when you went to do something, you could ask people to sponsor you and invariably they would. And it was back in the UK, so it would be 10p a mile. It wasn't a huge sum of money, but, you know, you could raise a little bit of money and and that was always cool. And I suppose just a, a lot of my early events were charity events. I was involved the first time I rode the marathon that was raising money for the a team to go to the Special Olympics and... And I, I got to meet the team, the people I raised the money for, and it just made them so happy. And and I suppose that's something I've seen over and over is when you fundraise and the difference it makes. And I suppose it comes back to my values of, of helping people. You know, we can all win, right? I love helping people. So that's, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's win-win. And, you know, why not? Why yeah. not do something, make it exceptional, make it special, and, and raise a bit of money at the same time. Because quite often you'd enter an event and you'd, you'd pay an entry fee. So I'll make my event free. You can come and do it with me and let's give that money to somebody who needs it or, you know, I'll make a difference in someone's life. Yeah, that's a great way to look at the world. And, you know, I'm conscious of your time, so maybe we can that's finish right. up with this. Yep. But um, you probably have this one of the single greatest stories I've ever heard in my entire life. And it was, I've recounted this story several times to other people and it needs no hyperbole because it is such a good story, which is which is unique with stories because normally the fish gets bigger and bigger each time you tell the story. Yeah. But um, it was the, the story of the fundraising you did when you rode Mount Everest. Yeah, the, the first, yeah, the first, well, yeah, it's funny how these things come about. And I do tell this story, you know, the, the full version to give credit where it's due and to just to downplay my part. So my very first Everesting, the one where I got uh, halfway through, I was up and down dyers, back was in pieces, I pulled out. 
when I stopped at the halfway, there was no reason to go on suffering. And I knew that when I went to do it again, because I'd done a lot of charity stuff in the past, in my head I thought, you know what, if I if a hundred people had given me money based on me achieving that thing, then maybe I wouldn't have given up. You know, there were lots of things that happened, but that was one of them. So when I went to do it again, I set myself the goal of raising $8,848. And I was working at a great company called Orcom at the time with the Archer family, amazing people. They did a lot with World Vision and the whole company pretty much came out and supported me. So I cycled up and down Kinlock Road on the Banks Peninsula 16 times to achieve the 8848, raise the money, which was great. I was incredibly happy. Give the money to World Vision. In the office, I was sat beside this uh, this guy, John O'Malley. He was kind of near, maybe even past retirement age anyway, but he is a lovely old fella. And uh, sorry, John, for saying old, but he's a great guy. We used to get the milk at work, and there was a competition where you could peel off the labels from the milk bottles, fill in your details, send them in to win this competition. And normally you you wouldn't bother because you go, what are the chances of winning that? But John and his wife peeled off all these labels. All you had to do was send him your details and and he'd fill in the labels, sit at home at night, fill in the labels and, and send them in. And uh, anyway, we won. And that ended up being a couple of hundred thousand dollars. And then... Orcom put in some money and there was a two-for-one scheme with the government at the time for um, Cyclone Pam Relief. And long story short, I think the donation to World Vision ended up being like a million dollars, which was just amazing, you know. So John really did the, the bulk of that, but he often claims to have been inspired by me, so I kind of claim the story as my own but it was a great journey. And John and I got to go over to Tana and see some of the work that was, uh, it was, yeah, it was great. The reason I love the story so much is it's like a lot of things. They can start out really small. You don't need massive plans. If you've got good intentions and you just start the ball rolling, sometimes that ball just gathers mass and ends up being this epic thing. You know, we didn't know what was going to happen, but, it was a great story. And it made a huge difference to We went over to Tana and we were treated like kings. It was quite embarrassing, actually. But, yeah, they danced and had all these presentations. And, yeah, it was pretty special. Well, you gave a million dollars to charity in one go. Yeah. Yeah. It's phenomenal. And your humility is oozing out of you. Oh. You sort of, I know you like to fly under the radar instantly, but that's an incredible effort. Most people, you know, would go lifetimes without, you know, being able to contribute as much as you have in a single go. So again, kudos, yeah. mate. It's um, amazing. What's next? A lot of people ask me that. <laughs> I don't know. I'm always just kicking things around, I suppose, trying things. What's floating around at the moment? We're going to do an Everesting thing at the gym on the stair climber, mm -hmm. you know, just because people have shown interest what I'm doing. So mm -hmm. it's like, okay, let's keep going with that. We've got a stair climber at the gym. Let's get a team together. And sometimes you just have to have the ideas, give people permission to do silly things. Here's the thing. You've got permission to do it. We all, I wish we didn't need permission so much, 
we're more than capable of doing things off our own back, but too often we need somebody to not give us the idea, but give us the permission that it's it's okay to to go and do it and give us a context and a scenario. And so that Everesting thing, I'd like to do, I always wanted to do the, the Tour Divide, which is a bikepacking race in the States, but it's just, I haven't got time to do it at the moment to take that long off work. There's also a, a thing called the Canning Stock Route in Australia I'd love to do, but that's probably anywhere between four and six weeks to get it done. So they're there on the back burner. Yeah. What I'm actually really enjoying at the moment is just helping other people. One guy that trains with me at the gym, Gordo, he had a go at a virtual Everesting the other week. It took him 24 hours, I think, 23, 24 hours to get it done. But he just went for it, boots and all. He just he said, I'm going to give this a go. And he started at 6 o'clock on a Friday night, Friday night or a Saturday night. He started at 6 o'clock at night. I mean, <laughs> even I was going, that's that's crazy. Like, Why wouldn't you start in the morning to give yourself the best chance of getting it done? But he had things to do during the day. You know, He's got a big family. He had things to do. And he started at 6 o'clock at night. So he rode all through the night, then all the next day. It made me so happy. It made me so happy that somebody else is going, I'm going to give this thing a go. And because... You know, we all grow when we do these things, and I don't know. I haven't debriefed with Gordo to find out, you know, but they're great things to knock off a challenge. Yeah. You know. Yeah, huge sense of satisfaction. And um, as you've discovered, your love of helping people, and that sort of aligns yeah. it. So maybe that's what next is sort of helping other people do equally. Yeah, as- maybe, yeah. I, that's kind of part of the reason I do it now Yeah, is to try and – I want to say inspire the people around me, but just to show them that it's possible. Mm-hmm. And if you want to do this, you can. No, I think you certainly do that. I, I like this question because it's sort of, you know, I've asked it to most people, but when you think back about all the stuff that you've done, you know, you've got to, even in the last sort of hour or so, we've discussed some amazing lifetime feats. You know, when you think back about everything, what is it that sort of that you're most proud of? You've given a million dollars to charity and you've, you know, helped someone who probably never thought they would ride a bike for 24 hours, ride a bike for 24 hours. And you're so humble that I think there's probably a huge number of other stories and achievements in there that that would be worthy of a mention. But is there something in your mind that sort of sticks out when you look back? When other people get involved and talk about these things and they talk about the achievement, you know, that time we did X, Y, and Z. And it's like being in the trenches together. You know, you've been to battle alongside somebody else and you, you form these great bonds. They're important. Some of the my fondest memories are like when the, the McLean's mountain bike race, when my kids crew for me on that and they've been doing it for a number of years and they've got it down to this fine art now of giving me bottle hand-ups and food and just being disciplined. And that is it amazes me because they take it so serious and they get into it. My kids applying themselves. My son jumped on Zwift, so on the indoor cycle trainer the other week. And um, his first session hooked up on Zwift and his first session was three and a half hours. And... <laughs> I said to him, you're crazy. He said, thanks, Dad. And it just, you know, it was a great moment. So it's all great. It's all great. And the more people that are involved with it, the better. 
I get a lot out of people as well, getting excited around me. Like I take a lot from that. So I have this nickname, the Badger, and a couple of friends invented that. But when the nickname, the Badger, came along, I also kind of got reborn into this endurance superhero. And I've been living on that for the last few years, and it's such a great thing. And and it hasn't always been there in my life. But, you know, you're talking before about your affirmations. I, I think it's really important to see yourself as this superhero whatever the superhero version is of yourself see yourself as that person and and you know my friends coming up with the name badger and sticking this superhero label on me actually i turned into that person slowly but surely and that's a great thing and and people they know they talk about the badger and all this stuff and but yeah i think the chicken and egg like the I certainly evolved into that person that the people around me wanted me to be. Yeah. Hmm. Why badgers? Is it because is it after the honey badger? Those guys are the, <laughs> those 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 tiny little things that take on lines and stuff, aren't they? Is it? Are you sort of the personification of that? There could be a, a lot of reasons why that I'm short and I've got a big bum, but um, <laughs> and I'm grumpy when you poke me with a stick and I've got bits of black and white and grey. There could be lots of reasons, but. We were just out on a bike ride one day and mm-hmm. I was singing. There was a video clip at the time which just went badger, 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 badger. And I, I ended up singing it because I was we uh we went on a ride from Christchurch, Lewis Pass, over to the West Coast and and then back through Arthur's Pass. And every time it was my turn to take the front, so I'd cruise up alongside and I'd just be singing badger, 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 just to try and, you know, yeah, just have a bit of fun and yeah. Yeah, it ended up sticking. Stuck. Yeah. Like all good nicknames. Yeah. Hey, um, before we finish up, is there anything that you want to leave us with? You know, an idea, a quote, a message, a, something that's helped you, maybe a, a book that's, you know, changed you or inspired you, or anything that, you know, we maybe haven't talked about that you think that is worth people knowing? I don't know if there's any one thing. My passion at the moment is to try and help people realize their own strengths because we've all got them. It's so easy to focus on what we're not good at. You know, we're predisposed to negativity. It's really easy to do. And it's a survival thing, right? Because we don't want to repeat negative experiences because they may kill us. And a lot of positive experiences pass us by. That's why the the gratitude thing is, is so good. Now, you were the first person who ever said, the, you know, introduced me to the gratitude thing, by the way, but but it's become more and more popular over recent years as we understand, you know, the science behind it. But if the people around me could do one thing, it would be to know their own strengths, to know what they're good at and appreciate those strengths in those in themselves. And then and then that's the basis for your superhero version of yourself. And just be that person and and live your life as as that person because it's really not hard. You just choose to do it. You choose to live life according to your strengths and the person you want to be and then just go do it. Easy. Easy. Yeah. It's beautiful. Mate, Andy Beal, um, I've thoroughly enjoyed this. We've spoken for an hour and a half now, mate. I've um, thoroughly enjoyed, like every other interaction I've had with you over the last four or five years, I've uh, really enjoyed it. And, um, mate, it's, you know, you do some pretty special stuff out there. We've covered a, well, I think we've sort of maybe 10% of the things you've probably done 
um, we've chatted about you you continue to sort of inspire people and, and I think it's pretty obvious now from you know you've found this passion for helping people you certainly are, are making a pretty big dent in the world so mate thank you for everything you do thank you for your time can I thank you because life is often a function of the people you meet along the way and support you in your journey and and help well, me and you certainly affected my approach to the world. And, you know, there was, so yeah, thanks. So that, the whole gratitude thing, like I say, that was, I remember speaking to you about your experience and, and how it changed your life. And, um, you know, the first time I met you, I thought you were a bit cheesy, Maddie. And, and it turns out you are as nice as you make out to be. So like, it's great. Thanks for being part of my world. Oh, the admiration is mutual. Andy Bill, thank you so much. Cheers, mate. And there it is, Mr. Andy Bill. Man, can you get a more inspirational, kinder, humble, more empowering human being than Andy Bill? I don't know. Well, I certainly haven't met anyone, that's for sure, in my life. Thank you so much to Andy for taking the time and, and coming and having a chat today. And one thing I did forget to ask him um, at the end of the podcast is where you can follow him. If you are interested in keeping up with any of Andy's adventures, missions, crazy ideas, whatever it is, um, he's on Facebook under Badger Coaching. Badger Coaching is where you'll find Andy Beal if you want to keep up with that. Um, and also, thank you so much for checking out the podcast. As I always say, I love doing these. I love having these conversations, particularly with people, uh, the caliber of, of Andy Beal and um, the fact I get to do them and, and other people enjoy them as well is just fantastic. So thank you so much for checking it out. If you did enjoy the episode or you took something out of it, I would be incredibly grateful if you could do one of two things or even two of two things would be even better one would be to jump onto iTunes and leave a positive review for the podcast it helps it grow uh, and secondly um, if you can share the episode or share the podcast with someone you know like or think might take something out of the podcast as well um, you can do that either whatever platform you are listening on now there will be a share button just hit that and send it directly to them otherwise just tell someone to go and check out the Road to Success podcast huge thanks and love from me I appreciate you listening I appreciate Andy Beal for doing this until next time Time. Have a great day. See ya. Bye.